3: 2004, and it appears this is my first podcast in two years. Uh, the film, The Eternal Sunshine of a
4: Spotless Mind.
5: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson.
3: And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 greatest films of all time. And when we do, we're going to shoot that list into outer space. And if you've been with us on this journey, you know that we've been going through different genres, kind of skimming the surface, finding different types of films that just move us. And right now we are in a very loving relationship with this genre. It's about couples and couple goals and how fitting that we are doing this uh, episode uh, right around Valentine's Day because this movie starts or does it on Valentine's Day. Ooh, where does it start? I mean, it starts there, but does the relationship start there? So many levels, so many levels, Amy. (laughs) Uh... You and I talked about this uh, last week. We haven't seen it in a long time, this film. No,
5: no, I haven't seen it in a long time. I mean, I think I haven't seen this movie since the period in which Charlie Kaufman became my absolute favorite writer and director. He was already one of my favorite screenwriters when this movie came out. But after this, he directed. I am in love with him as a director. So to go back to him as a writer, writer, is a new feeling for me. I was excited to rediscover the person I think is the greatest brain making movies today. And so, you know, in a series where we're talking about couple goals and the range of shades that that entails, happy couples, couples who are just meeting each other, couples who are fighting, couples who are in love, couples who are friends, figuring out what they are. I love how this one folds in because Eternal Sunshine, when it was being made, it was nicknamed when Harry forgot
3: Sally. Oh, I love that. That's great. Um, Also, just a heads up. Check out what we're doing on our social media because we are tweeting a lot of your information back out into the world. People have been coming to us with observations, with behind-the-scenes footage. Even the son of the man who made all the ice sculptures in Groundhog Day tweeted at us and uh, had a great picture that he shared with us uh, about those ice sculptures. So that is uh, my
5: favorite kind of Hollywood connection.
3: Oh, I, yeah! I just
5: I love that. I love that. I love that because. I've never wanted to act, but to like have some sort of tenuous connection to a film that I love has just been a dream. I want my cat to be in a movie. This has always been like my thing. Like, when can my cat just walk across the back of a movie? But to have something you care about, someone you love, be represented in this film in Frozen, your dad's ice sculptures, that to me, chef's kiss. Better than being Julia Roberts. Absolute best.
3: Well, I'm so excited about that because that is going to play into today's episode. And, oh, gosh, I am... I'm forgetting what I'm supposed to to do here. Uh, I don't know. Maybe
5: card. I'm just getting Paul Shear has forgotten that you are his co-host. Please do not ever mention movies to him.
3: I don't know what we would say here. I guess maybe Amy. What would we say to get to the next part of the show?
5: Oh my god! I can't believe I have to do this. I guess this is what being in a podcast relationship is all about. Let's unspool it.
3: The year is 2004. Scott Peterson is found guilty for the murder of his wife, Lacey Peterson. Mark Zuckerberg launches a little social networking site for Harvard students called Facebook. Martha Stewart is convicted of a felony and serves five months in prison. Janet Jackson experiences a wardrobe malfunction at the halftime show of the Super Bowl. The first legal U.S. same-sex marriage is performed in Massachusetts, and the big movies this year are... Mean Girls, which we talked about here on the show, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Million Dollar Baby, and today's title, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, Amy, who's in it? What's it about?
5: Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This is the second collaboration between director Michelle Gondry and screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. This is the first one of their collaborations that I think has been deemed unforgettable. I've actually never seen Human Nature. Is that insane? I need to see Human Nature. I've always been afraid to.
3: most people have not seen it. As a matter of fact, I was watching an interview with Jim Carrey and Gondry, and you know that part of the reason he got Jim Carrey to agree to this movie was he said, you need to sign on this napkin that you will do this movie even if Human Nature comes out and is a complete bomb. And Jim Carrey (laughs) did. And it was. And that's how he assured that he would get Jim Carrey, because he was so afraid (gasps) that that movie was going to bomb, and it did. Ugh.
5: This is, you know, when you love something so much, you don't want to ever see anything embarrassing by them. I, I, there's a good chance I might like human nature. I should probably see it.
3: You would uh, like it. If you're this much of a super fan, there's going to be something you're going to love about it.
5: Okay. Okay. But onward to eternal sunshine. Um, the story here is about a couple named Clem and Joel. They're played by Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey. They've been dating about two years and things are going badly. So they both decide to have their memories of each other erased by a company called Lacuna that is run by a doctor, played by Tom Wilkinson, and it is staffed by a bunch of slackers and true believers. You've got Mark Ruffalo there, Kirsten Dunst, and Elijah Wood, with this terrible goatee, takes the info that Joel leaves behind and uses it to seduce Clem, now that her memory is erased. So the erasing of the memories we get to watch in this film, and it goes from their most recent memories, when they're really fighting, to their oldest, meaning that this film gets sweeter and sweeter as it goes on, and that halfway through it, Joel, he changes his mind and he decides to hide Clementine in his brain so that he can find her again. Of course, we do know that he does forget Clem because the movie opens with them re-meeting each other in this kind of instinctual way. Then they have to decide whether or not it's worth to go through all of this pain again.
3: Yeah, actually, let's uh, take a listen to a little clip. Joel. Mm Mm-hmm? I have another idea for this problem. This is a memory of me. The way Mm -hmm. you
0: wanted to have sex on the couch after you looked down on my crotch. Joel, the eraser guys are coming here, so what if you take me somewhere else, somewhere where I don't belong, and we hide there till morning?
4: Man, I can't remember anything without you.
0: That's very sweet, but try, okay? Okay.
5: So, Eternal Sunshine, it comes out on March 19th, 2004, and when you take that and rewind it back to see what song was number one on the Billboard charts, we're going to hear a song we've actually heard before. In fact, we are going to hear a song that this segment is named for. It is Usher's Yeah. It is still number one at the Billboard charts. It was number one for 12 weeks in 2004, so it encompasses both Eternal Sunshine and Mean Girls. However, I did want to play it again because this one line jumped out at me early in the song. It sounds like Clementine hitting on Joel at the train.
4: Hey. Shorty, she was yeah. checking up me. From the game she was singing in my ear, you would think that she knew me. We decided to cheat. Okay. Conversation yeah. got heavy. Hey. She had me.
5: girl's all up on him, acting like she knows him. What's look, happening?
3: And look, this is, again, I'll bring it back up, my wedding song. This is the one that we danced to at our <laughs> wedding. So, it, you know, again, it brings back so many memories of my relationship. Uh, so what a perfect way to talk about this movie, because I alluded to the fact that this movie has a personal connection to me. And uh, Rockville Center is a place that I have spent a lot of time in in my youth. It's where my wife is actually from. I recognize many of the locations in this film. Rockville Center not a place that's often shot uh in film. And uh and the LIRR, been on it many times, gone out to Montauk, done that ride. This movie is so interesting because it's not even it's not in a cool place. Like Rockville Center is a Long Island suburb and I and I I feel it adds to the um the simpleness of this film. I think that, you know, in maybe another film, you would see them running through New York, Skyline, and, 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 you know, the big budget version of this film would definitely be more of a Hollywood place. But Rockville Center is so kind of just simple. It it is basically a place where people commute to New York a lot or just a a suburb outside of, you know, on Long Island. I, I just, I love that it's set there because I think it, it's so indicative and maybe that's my own connection to Rockville Center about like, I don't know, the blaséness of a relationship. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to pull a point, but I don't know if it's just because I feel this way about Rockville Center. How has Rockville Center hit for you?
5: I mean, it, it's just a name. I have no context for anything that's New Yorkish <laughs> at all, but I am curious, you know, to have a Rockville movie that clearly seems to mean a lot to the people from the area how does uh, Synecdoche, New York fit in, or Schenectady? Is it a similar kind of place? Because I feel bad that I really don't know. I've really only been to New York to be in. Minnesota.
3: Well, Schenectady is not spelt the same way it's spelt in the the film. So yeah. it, you know, I know it, it 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 is in that area. I mean, I'm that's upstate New York. That's a whole different ball. It's wax a whole for different ballgame? Oh. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think maybe I'm adding my own level to it because I always felt like. Long Island was a place that I wanted to get out of and go into the city. And it was kind of this uh, away station of like, okay, I can't wait to just get I'm so close, but I can't get there. And I feel like this movie is so close to, you know, these this couple having a perfect relationship, but they just can't quite get there. Right. It's not it's sort of right. And it's sort of wrong. And and maybe it's my own but my own weight my own baggage of long island that that when i watch this movie it it makes it feel extra weighty for me and i and i think you know when you're talking about rom-coms for the most part if they're out of high school they're often in a big city there's often a little bit of a um a desire like oh i'd like to be there i, I want to be in that scene there's nothing desirable about this i mean montauk is beautiful but it's uh there's nothing it it doesn't have that like that thing that most rom coms do, where it's girl like, in the I, big city. I have a cupcake. Yeah, yeah, like that, like that, that aspirational, like that. You know, oh, the clothes look so good, or this looks so good. It, um, there's nothing cool about it, I guess. And that's what I love about it is that it's just probably more realistic for most people, right? These apartments look amazing. They don't look great. You know, the furniture, it isn't like, you know, they're not overly stylized, especially in this time, 2004. You know, this is I mean, they are archetypes of like two very 2004 characters, right? You have Joel Barish, who's like a hipster, you know, in a way, like the way that you would imagine a a hipster. And, and He's not a hipster like I listen to cool music, but he's got a look about him. Uh, he wears vintage Cuomo. sweaters.
5: I mean, yeah. right? he looks like he wears vintage sweaters that could almost be Prada, but actually not. You know, when Prada was doing ugly stuff Oh, right. I remember those. Yeah. Like,
3: so I guess I should say like emo, hipster or something like that. And then you have yeah. like. He's this... got emo hair for sure. Oh, it's so floppy. Big time. Put him in a band with Jared Leto. And uh, and then you have the the and I've heard it described like this a million times. The the manic pixie dream girl. Right. And this is the the kind of subverting of who that character is in a rom-com versus who that character is in real life. You know, it's like, oh, all Zach Braff needed was to see Natalie Portman, and then his life gets better. Or, I mean, I'm thinking about two Natalie Portman movies. Remember that movie Beautiful Girls where, like, Timothy Hutton comes oh, home? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, she's not a manic pixie, but but there is this idea of, like, all you need is a girl who's wild and carefree, and she's going to set this guy on track. And this movie, I think, deals with that archetype in a really interesting way as well. It
5: does. I definitely want to really, really tear into that later. I mean, because it's funny, this movie even comes out before, like, the phrase Manic Pixie was coined in 2007. Oh, wow. But she shows up and you sort of already, you realize you kind of know what that is supposed to be already before you even have the lingo. But I mean, like, yeah, let's, like, kind of keep talking about them as characters. Because, like, in this setting that you're describing, this kind of, like, ordinary humdrum everyday setting... You have this Jim Carrey character who, it's kind of embarrassing how slow it creeps up on me, but he's a guy, I think, who's profoundly depressed. You know, he's a guy suffering depression. And and maybe it creeps up on me slowly because it's Jim Carrey and I want something more magical or maybe because it's like, he's the hero and you just want to imagine he's perfect. But no, this is a guy who is profoundly depressed and in the middle of a depression and being a huge drag and not really able to have a lot of conversations meeting a girl who does nothing but talk all the time, tons of feelings, and none of them are ever stable from one minute to the next. I mean, you you listen to them have this first quote-unquote conversation on the train when they're coming back from kind of randomly seeing each other at Montauk, and they're two people who really don't sound like they should be fitting at all. I mean, it is a little when Harry met Sally.
4: How far are you going?
1: Uh, Rockville Center.
0: Get out. Me too. Really? What are the odds? Do I know you? Do you ever shop at Barnes & Noble?
4: Sure. Mm-hmm.
0: That's it! Yeah? I've seen you, man. Book slave there for like, five years now.
4: Oh. Jesus. I would thought I would remember so five you. Five
0: years? It might be the hair. What might? It changes a lot, the color. Oh, That's I... why you might not recognize me. It's called Blue Ruin. Right. Name,
3: huh? I, like it. I think there's something really interesting about this relationship and in that scene in particular. A lot of the dialogue in this film was improvised. Um, and it was taken from rehearsal sessions where they had no boundaries. And Michelle and uh, Charlie Kaufman kind of put them into the film. And I think, truthfully, from what we know about Jim Carrey now, hindsight being 2020, he is a very depressed person. Like, he is... You know, I just read a tweet from him the other day where it was like, I wish everyone could be famous and successful so they would realize it doesn't solve any of your problems. Like, I feel like that is the, the thing that he has been fighting with since, like, The Majestic. Like, they, like, he seems ill at ease. So there's something really amazing about that kind of performance to see him probably in his most natural state to a certain degree.
5: Yeah, and I think Gondry was the first person to really see through the Carrie exterior in that way, to right. really see who he was. I mean, this is Carrie. In 2004, he's coming off of still being like the, the biggest box office draw that we have. You know, like nothing but gigantic comedies, like – Paydays that are in what? Like the eight-figure eight, eight figure paydays for making oh, different movies? Oh, I think it was movies?
3: $20 million yeah. he was making per movie. Yeah, yeah,
5: yeah it would I mean, insanity. You know, for a guy who I think had grown up as kind of a hard life and like a, a mother who was really unhappy. And Gondry sees him and Gondry just kind of looks through him and, see, and sees that he is what he kind of considers to be like the saddest little boy in the world. You know, like this lonely man. And that was not a side of Carrie that had been put forth that much
3: well, I think he played with it in in certain moments, right? I think that there is like there's a side of him in Cable Guy, which is one of my favorite yeah. movies, where you see like this edge to him. People didn't like that movie. And then The Truman Show, it's a Hollywood version, but again, you see this person kind of unhappy. Then he goes into Man on right. the Moon, where he goes fully into character. There's a great documentary on Netflix which you need to see if you've not seen it. It's it's it is uh it he goes so deeply into character in that film that like he is having moments with Andy Kaufman's family where they can kind of say goodbye to him like that's how deep yeah. it goes and then and then you go into uh these bigger movies right me myself and irene big sloppy goof fest grinch stole christmas oddly an angrier Grinch than we probably wanted to see. I mean, I heard stories about that movie where he had these contacts in th- that he needed to have a military expert with him because the contacts were were so painful in his eyes. almost picking like glass shards in his eyes. He was Ugh. miserable, like just a miserable experience being in all that sort of stuff. Then he does the majestic, huge flop, but that's him trying to get something out, then back to big, Bruce Almighty. And then this is, I think, the culmination of wrestling with this version of him and hitting success so this is the first time like he can do not a big performance that people actually really love and want to see
5: and actually that documentary you mentioned Jim and Andy which is on on Netflix and really really great I pulled a clip from it because a lot of what Jim Carrey is trying to do in that movie is explain what it was like to be inside his body as an actor and like all of the things he kind of gave up gave away to directors, all the kind of boundaries he lets lie. And he talks about meeting Michelle in this and how Michelle knew that he'd been going through a really serious breakup. He was breaking up with Renee Zellweger um, at the time. And Michelle, well, I'll just let Jim Carrey explain the story.
4: He looked at me over lunch and he said, oh my God, you're so beautiful. You're so beautiful right
3: now. You're so broken. I love this. Please don't get
4: well you know, uh, because the movie wasn't shooting for another year. So he asked me not to get well. (laughs) That's how fucked up this business is.
3: Oof, that is so gut-wrenching to kind of be manipulated in that way. And we talked about that a little bit in Godfather 3, like working out your demons in a film, you know, and Coppola working out the demons about his son through killing his daughter on screen. It it makes it very weighty.
5: Well, yeah, and then... I think Gondry, or at least Carrie believes that Gondry kept twisting the knife when they were making the actual movie because one of the things that was in Charlie Kaufman's script that got caught out is, you know, you hear that Joel refers all the time to, like, this girlfriend, Naomi, who he just calls very nice. And we never really see Naomi, but he's living with Naomi when he meets Clem. He seems to get rid of Naomi very fast for Clem. Naomi was, like, a character who was supposed to be on screen. Like, he shot a bunch of scenes with this Naomi, and Carrie believes specifically that Gondry cast Ellen Pompeo to play Naomi because she looked and talked like Renee Zellweger, and that he did it just to fuck with him, and just to make him sad, and just to kind of torture him. And then she wasn't even in the movie. But uh, have you ever heard any of his scenes with Naomi?
3: I have. I actually pulled a clip of one as well. If if you uh, probably the same clip, take, take a listen.
2: So what's going on, Joel? Uh...
1: I don't know. We've been,
4: I don't know, sort of unhappy with each other. I think
1: both of us are just so used to operating at this level. But, you know, I mean, how can one person be unhappy? If one person is unhappy,
4: both have to be. I mean,
3: Bullshit. don't they?
2: Who is it? You met someone.
4: No, I just need some space, maybe.
2: The thing is, whatever it is you think you have with this chick, once the thrill wears off, you're still Joel with the same problems.
4: It's not somebody else. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, it's interesting because there's an interview that happened maybe about a year ago when they were doing a press tour for Kidding. And, uh,. And they were talking about this. And Jim Carrey's like, he did it to fuck with me. And Gondry's like, no, I don't even think they look alike. I mean, Gondry is a very specific type of wonderful weirdo. I mean, in I mean, that they interview... talk alike. They talk alike. You oh, can't even deny that. I mean, I, like, 100%. But even Gondry, who watched this movie recently, he's like, oh, I just watched it again. I didn't even know what it was about anymore. I'm like, so, like, that's like a wonderful world of weirdo. So I don't even I don't buy his recollection of why he did it.
5: Well, yeah, well, that's on top of Gondry, like not watching it for years because he said when he was making the movie, he was going through his own breakup. So he couldn't watch it after that because it was like this totem of his own broken relationship. So he's oh, only wow. started to even be able to watch it again.
3: It's it's kind of amazing because, you know, now with hindsight, Jim Carrey said that he also felt one of the things that was so bad about Ellen Pompeo was that they had great chemistry and he felt like when he saw moments of them together on screen, it lessened the Clementine relationship because you wanted him to be with her. And so he felt like Gondry cut that because it felt like if we saw her and she was better, we would not have any want for him to be with Clementine. And I think not having her in the film allows us as the audience to project that other girlfriend, boyfriend, other, you know, whoever we've been in a relationship with, uh, onto that person. I think that that's actually really effective. I think this whole movie is... Yeah, you
5: fill in the blank as somebody lame.
3: Yes. Or just a relationship that doesn't work. And in a weird way, because this movie is so cyclical, um... There is something, you know, like there's a part of me that's like, oh, is his memory of Naomi just influenced by like these remnants of Clem? Like, you know, like how many, you know, what has what has gone on? I mean, obviously, we know that she exists, but there is something really kind of wonderful that all all relationships or, you know, relationships that are transient on some level kind of end the same way and, and live you know, like you love a person and they kind of fall out of favor and then you move on. Not all relationships, but but the idea that that's how most breakups happen. Like you don't often look back incredibly fondly on that person because you need to also move on. And maybe it takes years before you can kind of do that.
5: Well, I think even just structurally, there is something about having one guy and two women that does put the audience in the position of like, who is better? Like it becomes this competition and not like, relationships are different in their own ways and there kind of is no better. I mean, it makes me think of would my friends have been single, one of my main pieces of advice is I try to tell them don't go on casual dates with just one guy. Don't go on casual dates with just two guys. You have to go on casual dates with at least three guys at the same time. Mm. Because if you go on dates with one, you kind of shape your personality to fit that person. You're like, I don't want him to dump me. I'll make it work. And if you go with two, you feel like you have to make a binary choice. Which one am I going to date? But if you date three, then you can remember that it's about who do you want? And you put yourself back in the driver's seat of saying, I don't have to be with any of them.
3: I love that idea. That's a brilliant. It's smart. I think that you need to it's so easy to get into a relationship, or at least it is for me. I feel like I'm definitely more of a monogamous person, but there's been times in my life where I've been uh, somebody who you know, has dated around. I mean, again, when I talk about this, it's so far in the past. But, uh, but... You but, tell there, me about it, the
5: Walkman that you had back then.
3: <laughs> so I had this disc man and <laughs> Ashley Simpson was number one on the radio. Uh, so, but there was this, but this idea that, you know, you are also seeing two men vie for Clem. I mean, Elijah mm-hmm. Wood and Jim Carrey are both kind of after her. And, and even though Elijah Wood... Like, even though Elijah Wood is coming after her in a way that's a little bit more duplicitous, that's not uncommon. I mean, I think that one of the things I love about this movie is it shows so many relationships, and they're so intertwined without overlapping, right? I mean, whether it's the Tom Wilkerson uh, and the reveal of Kristen Dunst, or the Kristen Dunst and Mark Ruffalo, or the, you know, or even Elijah Wood and Kristen Dunst, and, you know, and Clem and Joel, and you're seeing all these types of relationships. And the movie does such an amazing job of capturing whether or not it's a moment in a relationship, but all these cycles of what a relationship is, whether it's dancing on the bed, uh, whether it is you know, arguing in the house, whether it is silently just walking down the street, having the uncomfortable conversation, uh, having the reveal that someone that you know, you know, you find out something new about them. It's all those, for lack of a better term, like traumatic relationship moments, you know, uh, traumatic doesn't often, I mean, maybe I'm using it wrong, but it doesn't always have to be bad. It's just like, it's these ones that like make a, a big impact on you. You know, whether it is the freedom of like, oh my gosh, I found this person I really love and my, my world is exploding. Uh, you know, it's shaking me out of my core or, oh my God, this person I love, I didn't know. But I think at the core, we go back to this pairing. And I think everyone can see a little bit of themselves in them. And I think because Joel is such a blank slate, it really helps the audience. Like, yes, I called him emo or whatever, but it's more of like how we are as an inside person, I think, right? Don't you feel like there's an element of him? Like, I'm not Jim Carrey, but I see myself in those, you know, even in those sadder moments or whatever, like that you can, he's enough of a nothing that I could be that person, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not the guy who owns a bookstore that Meg Ryan walks into. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not the political consultant from Harry Met Sally, you know, like there is something that is a shell that allows us to get inside of it, I think.
5: Huh. Yeah. This is another film where I actually don't know what they do for a living.
3: Nope. And he just skips work. That's all we know. Yeah. yeah. He just she skips works work. In Barnes it's probably Noble. not
5: exciting. Oh, that's no. right. Yeah. She works at Barnes and Noble. Um, and, but even Yeah. That, I like that she's like the recognizable girl at Barnes and Noble. Like I worked at the school library when I was in college and it was definitely like when you have that job where people see you in a location. Yeah. You know, they're like we had girls with like blue hair and stuff. You're like, yes, that is the girl. I mean, it is funny that going back to 2004 and this time are like one of her big insecurities is that having colorful hair is maybe too flashy and that people are going to think like she's trying so hard to like substitute having hair for a personality, which I think is kind of gone away. I feel like insane hair is now incredibly normal. But I remember those debates like that she's using this manic panic dye. I mean, her hair in the movie is all wigs, but I think the wigs are just so fantastically done because part of how you can help track the evolution of time and where they are in the memories is by her roots and by the vivacity of her hair color. You know, the further you go back in time, the brighter and brighter and brighter it gets, you know, and it, it reflects how much happy they, happier they are. But also, just, I mean, she's probably using what is that manic panic, I'm guessing? Yeah, which does not last very long, anyways. And so you do get this timeline. It makes me think of like how people got confused watching Little Women. I was like, look at the hair, bro. Look at the hair. Hair is everything.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right?
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
3: Well, let me ask you this question, because we haven't really talked about her yet, more of just her character, but... I mean, is this one of the best, if not the best, Kate Winslet performance?
5: I mean, it's true. I, I think Kate Winslet is one of like the best actresses that we've got. I mean, I used to have two Wi-Fis in my house, and one of them was named Kate Blanchett, and the other one was named Kate Winslet. Oh. I mean, she's just spectacular. She's only made a couple of bad movies, like Labor Day, and I don't even know if there's another one on top of that.
3: Insurgent. But She's,
5: oh, God.
3: But she's always very good. She's very good in them. Like, I don't love Steve Jobs, the movie Steve Jobs, Mm -hmm. but she's very good in that movie.
5: Yeah, she is. She is. And I mean, when you go back and read the interviews with her at the time, everybody's like, I can't believe Kate Winslet is in a modern film. Yeah, There was this sense in the press that the film is almost swapped. You know, you have Jim Carrey, like the loud, crazy guy playing the quiet one, and then you have period piece Kate Winslet, you know, who's only ever known and being like beaded dresses and ringlets playing a modern girl. And it felt like people considered it casting against type to see her in a sweatsuit. It, which, by the way, when you actually read the script, they call her character Zaftig. And I'm like, excuse me? Huh? Zaftig? I resent well, that.
3: Uh you know, I also feel like, though, she's, I mean, playing an American flawlessly. Like, I always feel like there's a, there's an undercurrent. You can always be like, Oh, there's a little bit of a mannerism there. There's something. And she really like, I just was amazed at, and maybe I'm, I don't know. The, the amount of emotion and turns that she can do and keep that voice and that character fully alive. Cause you know, it's, we know how she sounds. We know who she is. And that was really impressive, knowing that the movie is improvised. And I, I, I think a lot of people. I mean, it,
5: it is and it wasn't. Like, ca- okay. Carrie couldn't improvise. That was sort of the rule.
3: Interesting. Okay, is
5: that Gondry wanted everyone else to feel comfortable, but he actually wanted to like suppress and destroy the spark of Jim Carrey. I mean, here's wow. even Jim Carrey just sort of like moaning about it a bit I, on um on David Letterman. It seems like it was a bit of an exhausting uh film for him in that way because because Gondry was trying so hard just to break him down and kind of break his spirit.
1: Now the, the, the man who directed this film uh, is, is... Michel Gondry. French. Yes, he's very French. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was during... Oh, the, no, what do you mean he's the er- very French? No, you you know, well, there's French, and then there's very French, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? He's... Uh, oh. I mean, French. I mean, he's <laughs> like, you know... It's like, you know, uh, don't say anything bad about the grape. <laughs> no, uh, uh, how is the grape? No, um, you, uh... You just have to really try hard to understand what he's saying. It was very difficult, you know, but he was such an innovator, so interesting. All the special effects were done in camera, Mm -hmm. which means the, uh, uh, like, I would run around the camera and change my clothes if I'm in two two places at the same time in a scene. And it was just madness. I was constantly arguing with him. I can't do it. It can't be done. I can't physically do that back and forth three times. And he would say... How do you know until you track uh,
5: no. <laughs> By the way, that clip, if you watch it online, it ends with Jim Carrey saying he's going to show you a clip from the film. And then leaning forward, he's got a, kind of a, a flat top at the time. Having somebody come up with um, a razor, shave a, a rectangle on his head, and then bend over and project the clip from the movie onto this new bald spot on his head on David Letterman. Whoa. He's really committing to some kind of insane bit. That is now forging the Jim Carrey that, to me, makes a lot more sense in 2021, knowing the direction he goes in, that it maybe made sense in 2004.
3: I still feel like Jim Carrey, you know, people say that when you play Hunter S. Thompson, I mean, not that many people have done it, uh, but Bill Murray and Johnny Depp both share this thing where they knew Hunter, they played Hunter, and they said, once you've done it, you can't lose Hunter. Like a part mm-hmm. of you will always be changed by Hunter S. Thompson. And I think you see that in both of them to a certain degree. Um, Definitely Johnny Depp. Uh, But being Andy Kaufman, I believe forever changed uh, Jim Carrey. Like Jim Carrey has done some really bizarre things like that. But I'm also thinking about the time when he like... I don't know if it was many times, but he like once or twice just came fully dressed in character. I mean, he would still go around as Tony Clifton years Mm -hmm. after the movie was out. And I remember like one time he got an award and he was totally uh, in cowboy, uh, cowboy outfit, had long hair. And, you know, like there was a performance art element that was not there as much i mean yes there was always a talking out of the butt crazy jim carrey but there became i'm pushing you i'm doing stuff even if it's right now with the paintings or what he's doing online like even when he just tweeted like spring or sprung or whatever on twitter like a million times like after he and jenny mccarthy got like like these there is something going on there and maybe it's a broken person i don't know but I, i i believe that that never left him in a way um
5: I mean, I would love for him and Joaquin Phoenix to be trapped in a room with whatever they want in there. I don't know if they feel like drinking or if they feel like just eating a bunch of vegetarian food, whatever they want. I just want them to be trapped in a room and I want to hear their conversations about blurring the line between your public and private identity and how you deal with fame that you do not like and how you try to rebuild your identity on your own terms and how it doesn't really go well. And yet I find myself really respecting it. Like I really respect what Joaquin Phoenix did, especially in like the walk the line era to try to reclaim well, his identity as an artist instead of a celebrity, which I think is what Jim Carrey also has been on the path
3: of trying to do. And by the way, do you hear this? You hear oh, that God. knock? Somebody's yes. outside that door and that's Jared Leto. And let me in, let me in. I want to be a part <laughs> of this conversation too. Uh, but nah. uh, no, I know. Uh, but But, you know, I always felt that uh, Joaquin Phoenix, that movie uh that he did, where he again became yeah. that character, would have been. Here. I'm I'm still here. I'm not really there, no, and that's, the that's the other. That's the one is the race. Bob
5: Dylan, and then one is the yeah,
3: yeah. The one where he kind of ollie g's it, borats it. Um, would have been so much better served under a talented comedy director because. He was doing something so interesting and it was so poorly mishandled, uh, I think, for what he wanted to do. And it was, you know, again, it was like, I just, I watched that movie and went, it's so close to being genius. And it's so far away because it just didn't execute the right way. But I I, I I love what he did.
5: It didn't make sense to me until I went back. I had to profile him for her. And Mm -hmm. so I went and read like every interview he'd ever done, more or less in order. And, you know, I never really put it together. I know we're on like the crazy Walking Phoenix uh, tangent, but well, until we do a Walking Phoenix film, I'm gonna talk about it here. I really believe that what happened is he was acting, he was kind of building his career on his own terms. His brother dies, he lays low for a long time because every time he pops up to do a film, all people ask him about is his brother. Can you imagine like your favorite person in the world dies? And you every time you like stick your head up, people are like, tell me about your dead brother. Tell me about your yeah. dead brother. And that was still going on, like up through walk the line. Every time he'd do an interview, the interview would always come around and be like, tell me about the worst thing that ever happened in your life. And so he starts to fuck with people like in that period. He's on the red carpet for walk the line. And anytime he doesn't like where he thinks the conversation is going, he turns to the journalist and he'll say something like, is there a frog in my hair? I think there's a frog in my hair just to be like, I can't handle this anymore. Like, it really was like, a, I don't want to do this part of the job. And so
3: yeah. But then the
5: thing happens where, like, you kind of bite the hand that feeds you. Like, you tell the journalist that this is for real. You are, like, a serious musician and you are fucking with them and there is this hostility and it is real and then you're lying to them and then they get mad that you're lying and then you're just off on the wrong foot kind of forever. Like, I don't know if he's ever gotten back on the right foot with the press, which is frustrating. I think he's a really talented actor.
3: What are you going to do? But he, let, he lets the work speak for itself. But I will say that what we're talking about actually ties really into this movie in the sense of, like, you can be broken down by something and someone, right? And and like you said in the beginning, like when we meet Jim Carrey's character in this film, he seems really depressed. And I as re-watching it last time, I'm like, oh, are we meeting him as a depressed person? Or are we meeting him with this... Hangover, this hangover of, you know, this awful night's sleep, right? Like, how much of this does he remember? How much does he not? How much has the drugs kind of fucked with him? Like, we're meeting him, Logie. Like, you know, he, you know, he pops out of that bed and, and, and we're looking at him one way, but I think we're also realizing this is a man who has, and like Tom Wilkerson says, brain damage. Like, brain damage happened to him last night. So, that's true. Like, know, he's
5: had a hard night of drinking.
3: Right, and yeah. we see him when he first meets Clementine earlier in the film, and he's definitely more of an introvert there, but this is a character that's a lot more broken by the time we meet him again uh, in that one sequence. And I found it actually really hard to connect in because I'm like, why would you ever, what if I'm her, Why? what do I see in this person? And I think what's kind of lovely about the movie is It talks about, like, love and relationships, like magnets. Like, you can't separate people. Like, and I think that that's the thing I really want to talk to you about. Like, this idea, like, what this movie is saying is, like, is this the ultimate love story? Because love is painful, like, on some level. Like, I have had a lot of pain through having relationships, relationships that I'm in, relationships that I've broken up out of. It is something that it does. It's not easy. And most movies, you know, show you how wonderful love is, how everything changes. You know, I was here and now I'm here. And, you know, very few films kind of show you the other side of it. But this movie shows you all the sides. And in many ways, is this the ultimate romantic comedy?
5: Where I want to start with talking about it is kind of where you are, which is, We meet these two people at their worst, which I think is interesting script structure. It's not like, hey, you're going to like these people. They're going to save the cat. We meet them really at their lowest point of making any sense on this planet, of being interesting. Because, yeah, it's like, why is she interested in him? Why is she like, come to my house? Why is she like, I'm going to marry you? Because he's bringing nothing to the table, that first real interaction. And you can't quite fathom it. And I think you're frustrated with him. Because you're seeing his, like, timidity and how quickly he just wants thrown away. And you're frustrated with her because you're like, why are you making these choices? Why are you such a mess? You know, like, why are you whipsawing through emotions so fast? Why does the word nice make you mad? You know, like, what is it about the word nice? Like she, she strikes you as a person, and perhaps she even is, like a person with maybe some undiagnosed mental health issues to get looked at. You know, that she... Yeah well enfolded. she's definitely an alcoholic yeah she's definitely an alcoholic and we're told that like right away she's pouring gin into coffee which who would pour gin into coffee is that Ooh, a thing i feel like I you'd really that. pour like a bourbon
3: yeah i mean i was like why gin um yeah that really kind of got me as a bombay sapphire no thank yeah. you uh yeah, yeah, yeah bombay that was
5: sapphire into coffee it, yeah but you're really it's one of those things where i can see it almost refractorily like I can imagine watching this film for the first time and seeing that scene and being like, nobody would do that. This film is bullshit. And then watching it with different eyes and saying, like, it jumps out because he's really trying to say she is not a perfect person. She is a fucked up person. And that is a fucked up thing to do.
3: I will also say that I believe the reason why it was Bombay Sapphire is because the bottle is blue. And I think that Michelle Gondry just wants color uh, and bourbon yeah. wouldn't have been as uh, vibrant. But I, but I will the say blue this. blue ruin. <laughs> but I will say that, you know, also... There's a truth in, we see all the things that our partner has that might be quirky or cute, but will maybe eventually come to annoy us on some level, right? Like, um, but we look past it. And I think this movie does a great job of showing that right off the bat. Like, here is something and we know, like, it is not going to be good, but you look past because you're kind of intrigued by it. And I think that this movie really talks about that idea of, like, what, you know, you know, like, all the things that we do. And what you were saying about their mental health, and we talked about both of their mental health, you know, hers and his. I want to posit an idea to you, continuing this idea, which is, is this just us without clothes on? And what I mean by that is, like, the internal monologue. This movie starts off with an internal monologue. and, And obviously what we show to the outside world is different than what we show to the, you know, ourselves. What we know is true for ourselves. And I feel like both of these characters are living the raw nerve of who they are. They're, there's no clothes on these people. They are just essentially very much unlike life. They are they are showing everything. They're showing everything. And I feel like you need to do it for a movie like this, but I don't know. I don't think you often get to see that, especially in relationships. Like, even when you're in front of people, you, you can dress it up. These people cannot change.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's almost cathartic that really one of the first times we see them together in a memory after we're being like, why these two people, why do they fit? Is that huge fight? I mean, let, let's even take a second to listen to like the, the violence really in, in their voices as they yell at each other when she's come home, you know, very late and drunk after crashing her, his car. You know, they're really trying to say in flashing lights, she looks magical. She is a problem. Don't let her cuteness distract from that.
0: It's three o'clock i kind of sort of wrecked your car I'm driving drunk it's pathetic i was a little tipsy don't call me pathetic
1: well it is pathetic it's fucking irresponsible could have killed somebody oh, i don't know maybe you did kill somebody should we turn on the news oh, and see should i check Christ, the grill to see if there's anybody. children or it's small animals dead
0: god you're like an old lady or something
4: what are you like a wino?
0: A wino? Jesus. Are you from the 50s or something? A wino? Oh, face it, Jolie, you're freaked out because I was out late without you. I mean, yeah, this idea of like revealing
5: the worst parts of these characters and revealing their first parts of themselves. I mean, now in like the context of Charlie Kaufman's whole career, it's exactly what he loves to do. Well, like, you know. After the seat of Synecdoche. then he does Lisa, which I think is just such a brutal film about everything bad that goes on inside of your head. And then you know, I'm thinking of ending things, also all part of the same lineage. Well, I mean, I mean,
3: adaptation me, as well yeah. is part of this whole story of like it. It is he is wrestling with all these ideas of how we compartmentalize, how we protect ourselves, what we do, yeah,
5: how we delude we, ourselves, like all yes. of the mean things we think to ourselves. I mean, to me, Coffin feels like this guy who could put on a tuxedo, and when he looks in the mirror, he's in a burlap sack. You know, he just—he has to put this really—the most painful, brutal spin on things for himself, almost like he's trying to keep himself in check. I was thinking about that even—you know, he wins the Best Screenplay Oscar for this, and he even starts off his Oscar speech on the negative, freaking out.
3: Um, That's really
0: intimidating. Um, uh, I'll try to look somewhere else. Um, There's so many people— worked so creatively on this movie and...
3: So. But don't you understand? Like, I mean, it's funny that you're putting in this perspective because I think now I understand how amazing it must have been for him to write being John Malkovich because like, I want to be out of my body and in somebody else's body, somebody who is confident, somebody who is carrying this thing. And I think what that movie kind of shows is, well, no, it, the grass isn't always greener. We all have these things. We all are wrestling with these things. And, you know, we talk a little bit about Wes Anderson... In when we we're talking about Rushmore, like the cuteness of the specificity, and I believe that Charlie Kaufman keeps the odd and doesn't fall into the cute. I think Michelle Gondry can fall into the cute, like his movies recently are a lot more of that, like wind chime, and a lot less <laughs> of what is around that wind chime. Uh, which I feel like it, it's. A, I think that this collaboration is actually quite wonderful because it it makes. Magic out of something that is kind of depressing. It makes something actually a lot more palatable. I mean, if Charlie Kaufman directed this, this is a more depressing film.
5: Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. There's this kind of yin and yang between the two of them, I think makes this film work really well. You know, that I mean, okay, Gondry has said that he thinks that they're both pessimists. You know, he says, I think we share a common negativity. But honestly, when I look at them at the outside, I think that Gondry is one of those people we were talking about last week, like a true believer in love in the dangerous way, Mm -hmm. you know, like he is, I think, still on this like continual hunt for like joy and that he believes in deeply. Whereas Kaufman seems to have like actually a functional marriage in his negative world, you know, something that has not really happened for Gondry. And so that this idea of like the destructive idealist and the stable pessimist is I think such a fun collaborative idea that they really balance each other out in this movie
3: where you get yeah. both halves. Well, I think there's something very childlike about Gondry. Like, I think there's this, which is, I think, what you're getting at to a certain degree. It's like when you are first in love, when you are experiencing anything, you're a kid, you're childlike. What is this? You're overwhelmed by it. Like, there's a story on set. They, you know, they did not get along great, uh, Jim Carrey and uh Gondry on this film. And, you know, there's a moment where they're getting into this fight and Jim Carrey's yelling at him and he says, Jim, if you keep on yelling at me, I am not going to like you. And if I don't like you, I can't direct you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where Michelle Gondry is. It's, it's not he's not doing this like for lack of a better example, like a Kubrick, like I'm turning the screw on him to get a performance. I think he's like, no, 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 I want to live in this. Like, yes, get sad. Yes, let's get, let's find that. Like, it's like a joy to that where I think Charlie Kaufman, and it's not a great comparison, but it's more like a Larry David, like can, can see where he is. He can see that he's a misanthrope. He understands his place in the world so much so that he's able to write it and reflect it in a really interesting way. Like, uh, you know, and that's and that's a different level of understanding who you are. Like if you can write yourself, uh, which he does and literally has done, like that just shows that you know who you are, where I don't think that Michelle Gondry could do that. I don't think I think Michelle Gondry's is like, oh, big, it's a big refrigerator. I love a big refrigerator, you know, where. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I think that he's kind of still caught up in the childlike wonder of everything, emotion, light, color. Um, And so you need this counterbalance, I think. And this is kind of the counterbalance of a great relationship, right? Like you need two interesting people bringing something together and you are both trying to create something that is true.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time.
1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
5: Basically, the story is that, like, Gondry has a friend named Pierre. And Pierre is talking to, like, a female friend of his. And the female friend is saying, you know, I really hate this breakup I've been going through. I really hate this guy, blah, 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 blah. And that this artist friend of Gondry's in France is like, well, do you want to erase this guy if you could? And she's like, yes. And then he tells that idea to Gondry because this guy, Pierre, is thinking about doing an art installation with that idea. Like, what if those little cards that get sent around in here, what if he just sent cards to people saying that somebody he knew they knew had race them? How would they react? And mm-hmm. so Gondry takes that idea and then runs with it mentions it to Kaufman and they managed to sell the idea for this film for seven figures before the script is even written. They sell the idea in the 90s. Like it's so long ago that like parts of the script are like set in the year 2001 because it hadn't happened yet.
3: I mean, when Memento comes out, I know Kaufman's freaked out because like, oh, shit, this is about a guy who doesn't have memory and he has these gaps. He's like, is that going to wreck our movie? I mean, when you think about that, they seem far apart, you know. Uh, But yeah, like this movie had been around for a long time.
5: For a long time. And I like that idea of like the building on each other, you know, to, to go to really talk about how much this is a collaborative idea, you know, that starts with one girl and mutates and mutates and grows and becomes this thing. And then you get the actors involved and then it becomes something else. And I just, yeah. I, you know, me, I'm always looking for ways of like deflating auteur theory.
3: Well, I want to talk about two things there. Well, the first being that just because we're here, Kate Winslet, the reason why Kaufman and Gondry, I think, like her is because she's like, I don't think the script is good. I think you need to get this character or her character better. And she gave him like real notes. And there is a thought being like, oh, if she like, I trust her because she is not just like, I love it. I love it. I love it. And I think the reason why that character is so defined and why she's so amazing in it is because she did have a hand in helping craft who that character was.
5: You know, looking at what they decided to leave out of the script as they were getting it into shape. It have you thinking, like, what is the bad version of this movie? The bad version of this movie is where they double down on, like, the technology aspect of it. You know, like, they don't put in in this movie. Like, well, here's their explanation, basically, of what we're going to see and how it works.
4: The first thing we need you to do, Mr. Barish, is to go home and collect everything you own that has some association with Clementine. Anything. We'll use these items to create a map of Clementine in your brain, okay? So we'll need uh, uh, photos, clothing, gifts, books she may have bought you, CDs you may have bought together, journal entries. you want to empty your home, you want to empty your life of Clementine. And after the mapping is done, our technicians will do the erasing in your home tonight. That way, when you awake in the morning, you find yourself in your own bed as if nothing had happened. A new life awaiting.
5: But they're not like, look at our little, like, cool CG renderings of this, and here's our zip zaps. I mean, they're doing this thing to his brain on a laptop, you know? So it's not trying to go hard into, like, the technical psychological matrixy world of this, which I appreciate, because I think that would make this film feel instantly dated. Like, they yes. really are like, here's a film based on a science fiction premise with this crazy technology, and what if we just treat it like a vacuum cleaner? You know, and then we yeah. go on, and we really tell the story we want, which is about the people at the center.
3: Right, which is, I mean, always the the root of what we're getting at. Like, the who cares about it? Like, we buy the premise of it. I think so often... I'm banging this drum again. We're forced to make things make sense. You don't need to make it make sense. Like, we're going on this journey. What if? Once you say what if, I'm in. Like, that's it. Like, if you're telling me the story of, like, all the president's men, show me how it was done. But if you're telling me a story about a guy who's time traveling, I don't care. Like, I don't. I do Like, yeah, I buy it. The DeLorean... It hits 88 miles an hour. It goes, why 88? I don't care. If I do, then the movie doesn't work, right? And 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 I love that this movie, and, and it's so fun. Like, he's in this bed wearing this kind of, you know, Doc Brown headpiece. So, like, it's, it's Frankenstein. It's modern. It's old. It's, you know, yeah. it's like, it's so fun. And, and I think what they do with this movie that actually even helps that is, This is not a commercial on TV, even though there was a commercial for Lacuna on TV. They don't put that in the film. It's like it's a shitty door in a a building that you probably walk by a million times with a, a small office. Doesn't look overly rich. Probably not that expensive. Like they don't. It's not a world in which everyone is doing this or it's afforded to everyone, you know. Um, yeah.
5: In fact, actually, if you want to hear a little bit of the commercial trailer that they would have made for it, I mean, it is in the actual movie trailer itself, which I kind of want to play two clips of. Like,
3: first, yeah, go ahead.
5: Here's Tom pitching what Lacuna is. Um, and then second, I just want to play you, like a little bit of the rest of the trailer, which is basically like how missold sold Gondry and Kaufman thought this was. They're like, here's the idea. Here's the like technological hook. Then we're just going to play this cheerful ass song. It's a comedy. It's got Carrie. And people were just like, what are you doing?
4: Hello. I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, a patented, non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. Hey, hey. anymore i
3: want to call it up. i i uh, love that i mean that's raising arizona again right this kind of idea like oh the baby is loose but yeah. the <laughs>
5: but, no, but, no, but to your point like the lacuna offices i mean one Kaufman wanted this office to be set in the same office complex as being john malkovich it was just gonna be part of this corporate office building a of universe which he decided not to go all the way with but the little details in here that crack me up are like, the yeah, the shabbiness of The Office, the fact that Mark Ruffalo is eating Fritos while they're doing this and they're having donuts. They make it messy. You know, they make it really humble. And I just adore that. I just really adore that they didn't go for the shininess of it. I mean, even the way that they're filming the movie doesn't feel like a sci-fi movie. It feels... No. I, I feel like we keep referring everything to the French New Wave, but that is so much of how they tried to shoot it. Running, gunning, you know... Lights where you can get them, not really setting up lights properly, like driving the camera guy nuts because actually he felt like there weren't enough lights in any of the things that like Jim Carrey kept walking in front of Kate Winslet's lights. But just like having two cameras pointed at these guys, kind of covering all the turf, shooting so much footage and then editing from there the movie they wanted. But that it wanted he wanted this like real freshness to it. You know, he didn't want it to feel airless. And I think so much sci-fi feels airless.
3: Well, what I love about the movie, too, is it looks lo-fi right from the get-go, you know, and that really helps with the bigger set pieces. Like when Jim Carrey is seeing himself as a child and in front of the fridge and the table, like everything is done practically, right? Even even when people are coming in and out of frame in different outfits, like Jim Carrey is layered in different clothing, so he walks off camera, rips off his clothes, sits down in the chair, like everything is done. You know, it, it's kind of what, I think Gondry has really embraced a lot more of. Um, But that lo-fi allows the uh, special effects to pop more because you can do a lower-fi special effect. And he did something that I always thought, like, uh, I mean, I've seen this done so many times on sets, but I love it. It's like Gondry, I believe this is new when he was doing it, had earpieces in all of his cameraman's ear and he would sit there with a mic and just be like, okay, go get that, go get this. Like he'd be able to whisper to them. And so he was directing them to capture different moments because it wasn't planned. It wasn't blocked. And, you know, I think you see that on a show like Friday Night Lights. Pete Berg, I think, has that style as well. That kind of sensibility of like, let's just get it. Let's get the emotion. Let's get the thing. And, uh, and some people can't adapt to it after they've done it so much because it is so naturalistic. And then some people who have are so used to it can't adapt to it because it's like well but i need to know where i move if i can't move and it gives this movie i think a little bit of a herky-jerky nature which really works well for the movie because it's like i'm trying to grab onto something and i can't it keeps on falling apart around me and i don't understand what's going on around me and i love how the credits come in i already i already thought the movie had started and it had but when the credits come in it's like it's more than a longer than a james bond sequence you're like oh Oh, okay, right. I forgot that. I was like, this is beautiful. It's really cool.
5: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I am such a fan of Gondry's type of tactile filmmaking. I mean, and what I think makes it so special is, you know, in cutting back on all of the CG... Like, yes, he's getting into fights with Jim Carrey. Like, they're they're having, like, a huge fight about the sink scene, for example, where, like, he built this giant hot tub and then he wouldn't let Kate Winslet get out because they're really trying to get the seed right.
4: That day was the
3: hardest day on the shoot and we were all really incredibly <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, tired. Yeah, yeah. And Kate fainted in the hot tub and oh, yeah. I got angry because Michelle wanted to shoot the
1: shot because he gets, <laughs> you know, really into it. He's like,
4: get her out of there. Pull the
1: body out and keep shooting, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I was he's like, <laughs> and I was like, I was out of my mind. I got into the male protector role and things like that. And, and then ended up like, he's chasing me around, getting, you've got to get back in the tub. You've got to get back in the tub. And I'm like, mm-hmm, like this. And, I, you know, I almost smacked him. Yeah, and he was like, he goes, are, are, yeah, I turned and I, uh, and I gave him a look. And, and, and he goes, are you going to punch? me in the face and i go i don't think so (laughs) (laughs) then he went back there and do you notice how important this moment when you're drowning yes i understand i got it it was it was beautiful it was a beautiful moment
5: and yet like in in leaning away from cg what he heightens is you know just using light you know the the idea of he was kind of talking about it is like you know when you go for a drive in the darkness and you have Your headlights in front of you, and that things just fade away into the blackness. That there's kind of this paradoxical nature to light that the more light you shine, actually, the more darkness you have. Have you ever read about this? It's so fascinating. Like in light pollution studies and stuff, they say, like, one of the worst things you can do to make a neighborhood safe is actually putting floodlights everywhere. Because when you put a light, say, on your door, Right. To like yeah. keep to make sure that nobody sneaks up on your door. What you're do- doing is you're creating darkness around it. So there's actually more places to hide. In that if you don't have lights, then eyes adjust and you can actually see the world a little better. Um
4: oh, but anyways, wow. yeah,
5: yeah, like using that idea of kind of like darkness in the periphery to have it be where the memories go instead of like tron. And then using right. the audio sound to just mess with the words, like like I love this argument that they're having on the street about whether or not they should have children, and when you watch it, like you realize that like Kate Winslet's lips stop syncing up with the sound, and that there's this garbled nature to it. It also I didn't realize this, but you know that scene where they're on the ice. I I love the scene between the two of them. You know it's when she kind of gets pulled back on the ice, she's just literally on a string. He's just literally pulling her back, wow. and I just I just adore that. I don't know why. Every time I watch these movies. I, Movies with this kind of style, I get sad. Like, why can't we just have this in everything? This yeah, is all that I want.
3: There are still people who are doing stuff, and I think that you look at like somebody like Ryan Johnson, who tips his hat to that kind of a filmmaking. You know, where there are still some practical things that are so much more fulfilling to watch. You know, uh, and you see it a lot in these smaller horror films. You know, whether or not uh, they turn out to be amazing, but I think you see a lot of fun stuff. But I, but I was thinking about this movie. And what it's saying, I was talking about this earlier with you. The idea that this is a relationship. This movie is a relationship, and what we take from our relationships, and what we love about our relationships, and as time goes on, our memories of a relationship fade, and the bad stuff kind of goes away, and you remember a lot of the good stuff. And depending, obviously, on the the level of the relationship, you know, uh, I'm talking more of like a casual, semi-positive relationship, you know, not abusive or anything like that. But the the idea of like would you do it again? And would you not do it again? And do you long for it? And was there a reason why you got out? And, you know, this movie kind of states its thesis at the end of the film. It's like on the last scene where she's like, this may not work out. Do you want to do it? And I'm paraphrasing. And he's like, yeah. And that's what we're agreeing to. Every relationship may not, this may not be good, but should we get hurt? I mean, basically we're agreeing, like, one of the coolest things to do is fall in love because you're opening yourself up to being as hurt and as broken as we see these characters. And it's worth it. You know, I think that's something that I don't really feel like people talk about that much.
5: Well, right. Because I mean, one thing that this film also has, in addition to like, our sadness at seeing this relationship fall apart, is it has a true believer. Like Kirsten Dunst's Mary is a true believer that this is the way to solve your problems. She thinks that you know, her boss being able to erase people's memories is such a gift and I really adore this character and how much she wants to impress him with mm. her intelligence and the poems that she has uh. I mean she's the one who reads the poems that give you the title of the movie
2: the quote goes how happy is the blameless vessel's lot the world forgetting by the world forgot eternal sunshine of a spotless mind each prayer accepted and each wish resign.
5: By the way, you know that poem that she's reading? Um, what she's reading is this poem that's um, called Eloisa de Abelard. And what that story is, I think, is so funny. It's based on a story that's from the, the 1100s. And it's um, about this woman named Eloise, and she's this nun who gets secretly married to her teacher who's much older you know, kind of shades of her and the doctor. Um, and then her family gets mad and her family castrates the old doctor for having this affair with their brilliant daughter. And so he joins the monastery and then he convinces her to join a nunnery since they can't be together. And then they go into their, their separate like monastic lives, Eloise and Abelard. And then finally, only at the end of their life, they start to write each other letters trying to explain what happened to their life and how it fell apart and their love for each other. And is it still love? And it's, Kind of this nesting story within the movie about like, what is an unhappy ending in a relationship or are love and happiness two different things, you know, which seems to be one of the arguments put forth. Like, can you be in love without being happy? Can you be happy while losing love? You know, you could be happy if you zap your memory, maybe. I mean, to be honest, like they both seem pretty sad even when their memory is zapped, but it works for Mary for a really long time
3: well you know there there's so many little details that this movie kind of cuts out too, because I believe in the original script, the reason why she got her memories app was because she had an abortion it actually i think it's actually i mean I wonder if they if that wasn't too um light enough for Michelle Gondry because I feel like they've cut out some little moments I guess there was like a, a whole bunch of sequences in the film where they would show like well here's a soldier who erased seeing his friend dead on a battlefield here is you know these, these bigger maybe more upsetting here's a, a, yeah. a woman who was raped and she took that out of her memory like what are we taking out of our memory and I think they keep it very much based in love and not, not yeah. the trauma of love not the trauma of life because from like uh, what do we
5: see in the waiting room we see a woman who's trying to erase the memory of her dog
3: Yes. She's got like a picture of
5: her dog. She's got his food bowl. And then there's a man trying to raise somebody. It looks like a female bowler, maybe. But you're not sure if it's a wife or a daughter. But they're older, too. You know, like the people who are in that room, they seem old and they don't seem rich. And they just seem ordinary.
3: But doesn't this movie say, like, with that thing, like, she'll always be attracted to him. Like, there is nothing rational about love. Yes, you can rationally go in and zap, zap, zap all these things out so it didn't actually happen. But love is not right. We'll find a way. Like this movie is incredibly romantic. The ending of this movie was originally way more dark. You know that you. I think you. You cut to the future and you see that Clementine has erased Joel like fifty times. Like she <laughs> keeps on falling into this trap. You know, but there's something interesting about that. We talked about patterns in Groundhog Day. Like, do we steep, do we keep on dating the same people? Do we keep on making the same mistakes? And that's an interesting conversation yeah. to have, too.
5: You know, Mary is upset now. Once Mary realizes this has happened to her, you know, yeah. she is no longer a true believer. She decides that this is wrong and that this is immoral. And you know, she sends them their tapes of what they've said to each other and to listen to what they say. I mean, let's just even play tiny clips of both of them. Mm. Like, It's Oof. brutal.
0: I've been thinking lately how I was before and how I am now, and it's like he changed me. I feel like I'm always pissy now. I don't like myself when I'm with him. I don't like myself anymore. I can't stand
4: to even look at him.
0: That pathetic, wimpy, apologetic smile, that sort of wounded
2: puppy shit he does, you know?
4: I mean, she's smart, I think, but not educated. I couldn't really talk to her about books, you know? She's more a
1: magazine-reading girl. Her vocabulary leaves something to be desired.
4: And I was embarrassed
5: in public. I mean, that is that is like your darkest, most breakthrough session at a couple's therapist. Like that is the yeah.
3: But I mean, look, maybe I'm crazy, but in a moment of anger, when you're so depressed, like I think about Jim carrying that car, listening to that song, and he throws it. By the way, the music in this movie is amazing. John Bryan pfft, uh, is. A, I love the music. Is just beautiful throughout, but when he's listening to that song, that Beck song, uh, you know, it's like, it, like I, you know, I've been in those moments. I've had those like great. And when you're in that moment, you're like, fuck that person. They've always done that. And like, this is what, that's the moment they're capturing. Those are not things for anyone to hear. Or when you're in a big fight with somebody and you say something that you may regret, you know, like, I don't believe that those are real emotions. Those are hurtful emotions, or those are emotions that help you get better. And I don't think it's real. That's what I think.
5: That has me thinking about, like, the spinoff that is about being that person's friend. That's the worst, is when your friend is going through that breakup, and then you tell them what you think they need to hear, and then they get back together.
3: And and, and the worst part about all of that, too, is who gets the friends. And that's what I think is so great about the David Cross-Jane Adams relationship there. It's like, okay, now they have to kind of be complicit in this, too. And that's what I love about... Again, I keep on saying I love this movie. I love this movie. But it attacks that one thing as well. Like, all right, well, who do you side with? And Jane Addams is kind of playing along with the game and David Cross is like, I'm not going to play along with the game. And, you know, that that push-pull, now we can't be friends, now we can be friends. Who gets the friends? It's not a decided thing. It just kind of slowly evolves. And, you know, and by making it science fiction... I think we're able to look at these relationships and see all these things. Like, going back to Kristen and Dunn's like, yes, she was hurt, but she wanted it. She wanted to get erased. She didn't want to live with it. And then she's like, well, I'm going to take it off on you. You're a terrible doctor. And you did, like, so her revenge, it's so, like, we are irrational in our breakups. We are irrational. We are terrible people. We have revenge hookups. We have you know, we do things that are not ourselves or whatever it is. Like, that is the most unstable we'll ever be in that moment, mm-hmm. I feel like. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm reading into that way too much. But I, I think after a harsh breakup, oof, get out of town. You do not want to be around that person. They're depressed. They're crazy. They're everything. You know, you've had the ultimate rejection.
5: Yeah. And you're right. I think that is what makes the ending so touching. That moment of, okay. If you know everything you're going to get into, will you do it again? You know, (sighs) it just his the casualness of it. I think that's part of what I like about the structure is you go from not understanding Jim Carrey's character here as like a leading man, as a guy with any sort of appeal, and then slowly kind of seeing his appeal build throughout the movie as he becomes more himself or as we see the him that he was, you know, like confident and kind of lanky and he has that way that i love what that you see happen in a movie where a man just sort of wraps a girl up in a hug you know he can really enfold her he's like one of those uh i don't know car lot balloons what do you call them like that oh oh, i know you're talking yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. there's parts like when they're looking at the elephants um where he is like that car elephant balloon who can just like wrap her up car elephant balloon i don't even know what i'm talking about but you know he has that quality to him and when he starts you know smiling and being funny and showing his personality when they're at the drive-in like he is that great romantic lead, and you can really see what she sees in him then. And then, yeah, just that okay moment. Let's listen to it.
0: I'm not a concept Joel. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. I'm not perfect.
4: I can't see anything that I don't like about you. But you right will. Right now I can.
0: But you will. You know, you will think of things, and I'll get bored with you and feel trapped because that's what happens with me.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs>
5: I- I'm with you I think that that is the most romantic thing you can do is like see somebody's flaws really, 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 really see them acknowledge them, know that they know, know that everybody knows and still decide that they're worth
3: it This is the CSI, this is the forensic examination of a relationship. At the end of the day, this is what we're looking at. We are choosing someone to bring everything that is wrong. No one is a perfect person. Jim Carrey even says that in the film, you know, like, and you give it to somebody else and you expect them to give you this unconditional love and and it's hard and and your friends are involved and it's messy. And it is really looking at every part of what we do in this insane thing. Like, why do we put ourselves through this? And I think we put ourselves through it for that moment that he realizes when he kind of wakes up in the in the erasure where he's like, I don't want to lose these memories. I Yes, that was painful, but that created me. That got me better. Like, it's through every bad memory makes you... In the moment, it might be hard away from it. It still might be hard, but at least it defines you. You did get through it to just take away all the pain of life. I think makes you the most uninteresting person to be around.
5: I mean, maybe that is why he is the most uninteresting person to be around at the beginning.
3: Yeah. Like she. Wow. There it is. She was
5: part of him. He took her away. Everything she had helped him become, which then it sounds like I am turning into that like manic pixie dream girl that she doesn't want to be. But even though she's flawed, I think you can help people become... I mean, I want to listen to her give that speech to him. Like, this is who I am not. Do not come to me for this, that she gives him in the bookstore right when they first met.
0: Look, man, I'm telling you right off the bat, I'm high maintenance, so I'm not going to tiptoe around your marriage or whatever it is got going there. If you want to be with me, you're with me. Okay. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours.
4: I remember that speech really well. I had you pegged, didn't I? Yeah, the whole human race pegged.
0: Hmm, probably.
4: I still thought you were going to save my life, even after that.
5: Mm. No. You know, what really popped to me is like her character, you know, saying, I am not your fantasy girl. Like, I am not this right person. Please see that I am a mess and not just this adorable creature. It made me realize why she turned so much against the word nice. You know, nice is what you tell a person when you want to tell them everything is good and that they're okay. You know, like if there's anything that goes wrong in her relationship with Elijah Wood's character, besides that goatee, that sets him off. It's when he tries to compliment her. And he calls her perfect. That is not who she is. She is a mess. She wants to be loved for her mess. She wants to be loved for the whole person. And that is exactly what the movie ends with. She is loved for being the whole mess. It's like she's been waving her hands the whole time. Love me for my problems. And even, even Joel wouldn't do it. You know, He was even still like, you're wonderful and perfect and you're everything and blah, 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 blah. And that's finally the breakthrough that has well, to happen.
3: Well, I mean, yeah. I, like I would say that, first of all, I don't think that she fixes him because she's a manic pixie girl. I think she yeah. helps him because he lived life through it, right? Like, she wasn't good so for tinted. him. Yeah. yeah. she Like, she wasn't necessarily great for him, but he lived and he benefited from that. But I think what's so interesting about this movie, there's another version of this movie. This is about erasing someone, but this movie does it all. It does it all, Amy. Where, like, at the end, where they basically, like, could you get a dossier on your potential someone? Like, if you were getting ready to get into a relationship and someone... Should this be my movie I should write? It. I mean, it's just this movie. <laughs> but if someone could, like, basically like a private investigator, give you a dossier on the person that you have, would you read it? And would you date them after having read it? Like <gasps> really, like bare bones, like this is it. This is where they're going to drive you nuts. This is where they're going to hurt you. This is where they're going to do it. And I think that we don't want to acknowledge that, th- that there's this other thing because it makes the falling in love part bad. And we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, like, oh, the blissfulness of like, I'm in love. But I think the more fulfilling uh, love is when you know all of that and when you struggle with all of that and when you fight through all of that and you get through all of that because then you know that person and then you are trying to figure out how I am with all of this, like like I'm asking somebody to take on all my shit. Like, why can't I take on their shit? And that then is that the true is that the truest form of love when yeah. you can kind of just accept somebody for everything. And we don't want to even acknowledge that there's an everything because we think that they're perfect when we meet them.
5: You know, this is the dumbest story, but I have to say this because it's been cracking me up this week and I just have mm-hmm. to say it out loud. Yeah. So one of the quiet tensions in me and my boyfriend is that I always have to do the writing for us as a couple. Like if you're sending a card, I'm the person who writes the card, you know, and -hmm. it's always quietly annoying me because it's like not a thing I really consider myself good at is writing the card. Right. Um, And then we were doing a crossword puzzle together for like the first time. And my boyfriend was like, your handwriting is atrocious. And I was like, I have been Uh, telling you this. Like you keep making me be the card writer. My handwriting is atrocious. How have you never noticed this? And, you know, we've been together over four years. And he suddenly remembered that when I gave him my number for the first time, he couldn't call me because he couldn't read my handwriting. So he tried the number and it was a wrong number. And he thought I gave him the wrong number. And then he oh, finally no. found me on Facebook. And it was like, you have known from the beginning I have terrible handwriting and it somehow got erased. And then he finally remembered that I had terrible handwriting. But it was That's like, so it was funny. there day one, man. It was there day one. You knew what you're getting. You knew but- what you're getting into
3: but don't you also think that like what is also there is his acknowledgement that he doesn't want to do the writing of the letters. (laughs) Right. So it's like, what's a bigger deal. It's like, Oh, I don't want to do this thing. So I'm going to forget that conveniently because, you know, and I, and look, I have all that. I mean, I have all that (laughs) kind of stuff. It's, you know, I mean, like I am, um, I am incredibly, um, like, uh, I, I don't know what the acceptable term is right now. Like, you know, uh, particular and specific about how I want certain things like in the house or organized and stuff like that. I'm, I'm very much that kind of a person and it drives June nuts because I'm always like, she's putting stuff in the wrong drawer or there's, I can't find the thing or, and I like to know, like when I go to this location, that's where my pen is going to be. That's where Mm -hmm. my scissors are. Like, I want to know what drawer holds the thing that I want because it makes my day work better and probably compartmentalizes anxiety. But, uh, but uh, and so she'll make fun of me all about it. But if there is a cabinet door open, it will drive her bonkers, right? Like, and it, she'll it really like, close that, close that, close But, like, it's so funny. Like, what she can look at as my flaw, she also has as, like, a big flaw. Like, she, like, I literally will be having dinner. she like, you got to close that cabinet. You got to close that cabinet right now. I'm like, well, what's the big deal? We're just having dinner. She's like, please, it's driving me crazy right now. Like, but it's sort of like how we... We all put ourselves in these moments of, well, that's not me. I'm not that. Like we Mm -hmm. we're sometimes not forgiving (laughs) of somebody else's thing as much as we are of our own thing. And that's the battle. Like right. And can you deal with that? And can you get past that? And can you not drive each other crazy? Because the truth is, is like you're finding a partnership. It's 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 romance is a giant part of it, but an equally big part is it's like like the living together, the like the the odd coupleness of it all is you still are sharing a space, like even though you kiss and uh, and sleep in the same bed, it, it, you know, and you love this person, you you gotta. There's things you gotta do. Like it's just, you know, it's like it's hard to live with anybody. I don't
5: know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that is then where Kaufman and Gondry come down on it. Is that Kaufman yeah. is like it's gonna be hard. I'll get the work done, and I think Gondry is still chasing that it has to be easier, even though we made this entire movie. I think he's still chasing that it has to be more magical than this. There has to be
3: a simpler way. Is he chasing the idea that like, it's interesting because it's sort of like, it's the, yeah, you're right. You're like, well, I think it's like Michelle Gondry's saying, "I, I don't care that you're a mess. I love you anyway. And Charlie Kaufman is saying, I know that you're a mess and I am going to work with us (laughs) us <laughs> to to get through it like there's like in there in there and it's a, it's a slight different thing it's like it's mm-hmm. they both are reticent like they both understand like yes relationships are hard and love is the defining thing but they both are attacking it two different ways like love is hard work i always say that to my friends like i'm like yeah like the benefit of being in a long-term relationship is great but there are periods there are hard times and like getting through those hard times are super uh, fulfilling like as well but they're hard when you're going through them
5: well then I will say now that Kaufman is the romantic filmmaker of quarantine
3: that is actually a very I mean you're right I mean this is a hard time for people and I've seen a lot of people get divorced in this time and I think that a lot of people have learned a lot about their partner I mean June and I have not ever spent this much time together in our lives only because you know we're going we're, we're just we've We just never have. I mean, Mm -hmm. and that, like, you know, not to say we spend months of time from each other, but literally we've been with each other every single day. And uh, it's not always easy, but that's okay. Nothing worthy, nothing worthy of uh, pride, nothing worthy of accomplishment is easy. Like, you know.
5: (laughs) Well, then do you want to hear about one of, I think, the funniest side infatuations of Eternal Sunshine? Yes, of an unexpected person who really loved this movie when it came Mm. out. It's a guy named Kanye West. So this movie comes out. Surprised he didn't invest
3: in the technology to do this from real life. But go ahead.
5: Well, now he can with Kim's money. Yeah. Why? He's just like knocked over by this movie, and so because of that, a couple things happen. One, you know the the closing song that we heard a little snippet of, and John Bryan, who you mentioned, he was just like, I yeah. have to work with this guy, I have to work with this guy. So he reaches out to John Bryan, and in one day, they write the song "Gold Digger," which is amazing. Wow! They do that song together, and then he also comes up with a bunch of other stuff for the album. Like you can actually really hear John Bryan, um, and and actually even see him in this music video for heard Him Say." <laughs> for a reason because i played the version of that video that is directed by michelle Gondry. kanye west was like michelle Gondry, i love you i love your movie will you please make a music video for me and so he makes this music video where it's like kanye west and three kids running around a department store after hours and the beds are moving around and all the furniture is alive and then kanye west is like no i don't like it and he makes another video and like really kind of breaks uh breaks uh, michelle Gondry's heart
3: but, well, I mean, by the way, you know, my familiarity with Michel Gondry started with his music videos. Remember, like yeah. there was like a great like collection of the like, DVDs. It was like Spike Jones, Michel Gondry, and um, oh my gosh, it Chris was- Cunningham. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Josh. Yeah, like those were always uh, fantastic. Like those are like there are like, these directors um yeah i love they're amazing I, from the fr- love... the
5: first one i remember is human nature by bjork which might have been his very first one but i remember seeing oh, that yeah. video being like oh what is this this is the most amazing thing i've ever seen
3: i love this conversation i love how this movie has affected everything i just want to say one thing to emmy imagine this movie close your eyes for one second and imagine this casting eternal sunshine of a spotless mind starring denzel washington the first choice for this movie was Denzel Washington.
5: Whoa! I heard it was Nicolas Cage. Denzel. That's, whoa!
3: To me, that's Cage is great. Cage, I see. I see Cage nailing this. Uh, it depends the way on they... which
5: Cage. Is it going to be Phoned In Cage or I? Get no, it's cage.
3: Adaptation Cage. That, that this is. I mean, I'm just making that go. I'm I'm saying that's mm-hmm. definitely Adaptation Cage. Uh, when I saw Denzel Washington, I was like, whoa! But I could see also. Denzel Washington going like I don't want to do a rom com. This is a big fun premise. Or you know like there is like there is you put a different director in this chair. This movie is a this is a high concept film down the middle pitch. You make this movie, it's huge. You put you know Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan in this movie, it works. Uh, I could see Denzel going like Ooh, I like this. It's enough of what I like. I mean, he actually did a movie where he stopped time, I believe, too, one of those Tony Scott movies. Um, but
5: oh, that makes you, me think I could see Will Smith in it. Yeah.
3: Oh yeah, but I think you could see anybody in it because it's. I think. It, like, but it's it's so interesting. Like I couldn't see him doing revealing himself as much as I think Denzel Washington is one of the best. Uh, but like getting to that that part, yeah, you and have to have a
5: sloppiness. Like Gondry said that one of the things he really liked about Carey is that Carey never looked like a cool guy, even at a Hollywood party. He was never like the cool guy.
3: I love that.
5: Well, I mean, also, Gondry talks about how they tried to get him to recast Kate Winslet. And he won't really name names, but he's like an actress won the Oscar. And then they tried to make me put that actress in the movie. And from the timing of how it played out, like I would guess it'd be the Oscars of like 2003, 2004. Mm -hmm. It would have been Nicole Kidman. So it seems like he won't say that, but it sounds like maybe they were trying to pressure him to put Nicole Kidman in instead.
3: I was wondering who's Marissa Tomei. I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from my cousin's name. But that's great. I could see be that. She'd be great, but it'd be different. Um, well, look, this movie goes on. It wins a bunch of awards. You know, Kate Winslet uh, gets nominated uh, for Best Actress. Does she win on this one?
5: She does not win.
3: Okay. okay. But I. it seems like people love this movie, but I'm sure there's some people out there that did not love this film. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what the love got?
5: for this film actually has creeped up slowly. Like, this is a film that costs $20 million, which seems like a staggering amount today. I think now they'd mm-hmm. give you... to make this film. And it only opened at number seven at the box office. I mean, $20 million opens at number seven, leaves slowly, like it's on the top 10 for a really long time, but low. And it finally leaves the theaters worldwide, globally making $74 million, which is okay. But, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, so this movie comes out and it gets good reviews, but I wouldn't say all of them are that glowing. The one that I pulled out was from Andrew Sarris. And he writes, Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind did not work for me, despite, or perhaps because of, the rave reviews it's received. He does love Kate Winslet on average, he says, so what what went wrong? Well, for one thing, Mr. Carey plays Joel Barish, who is hardly funny at all. Instead, he's a sullen, almost menacingly withdrawn and uncommunicative fellow. Mr. Carey is frozen in a humorless frenzy through most of the film. It just so happens that I am sick of fragmentation as a narrative device. You know, with the speeded-up time machine at their disposal, Mr. Gondry and Mr. Kaufman prevent Joel and Clementine from having the time to establish an emotional rapport that is worth saving or remembering. There's little charm in the coupling and almost no erotic intimacy, just a series of nerve-wracking conversational collisions. As if they were aware of the emotional vacuum at the center of the story, the filmmakers have supplied a tangled subplot involving the shabby low-rent operators of a psycho scam, he refers to Kristen or Kirsten Dunst's character as just, quote, a standard sex pot secretary. And then he says, um, the closet literalist in me was frustrated by the lack of information I was given. For example, we never see where Joel works or what he does for a living. He says at one point that he is living with a woman named Naomi. Does she exist? There is no visual evidence one way or another.
4: Wow. Well, yeah. There you go.
5: It seems like he just really came at it from the opposite direction he just really came at it wanting i think the ron howard version of this movie
3: well and i think it's hard i think whenever you leave too much on the like on the table or up to people's you know i mean it's a it's a tricky movie because they're in memories he's having a conversation with her but it's actually it's his version of her it's like she's not really like she says come to montauk but is that her no, it's him going, I have to get back to like, it's him like holding this place in his head and it's, she's yeah. wrestling with it too. And they were it's actually a,
5: even going to try to make that more robotic. So they were going to have her character seem more and more robotic. The more memories of her were stripped from oh, his brain. Wow. But then Gondry last minute was like, you know, no, we need people to care about them as much as we can. She has to just be herself.
3: I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I feel like, you know, the fact that they were so facile in, in making this film and letting it change. And, you know, I, I like they were shooting like, uh, what is it, like uh, 36,000 feet of footage a day or film a day because they were using handheld cameras shooting like 360 degree angles. Yeah. You know, like they, I think that they were writing a lot. They were trying to try different ideas. There's a whole subplot with um, Tracy Morgan that was just cut. I heard about this. Yeah, he played Joel's next door neighbor. And they decided he
5: was just like too, too big to Tracy Morgan. What's funny is a journalist went and tried to confirm that. Yeah. And so he went to Tracy Morgan's rep and he was like, is it true that Tracy Morgan was in Eternal Sunshine with the Spotless Mind? And Tracy's reps just said, quote, the comedian doesn't remember if he acted in the film.
3: Uh, amazing. And that just seems par for the course of the great Tracy Morgan. Um, <laughs> or was he zapped? Um, I'll say one other thing, because you mentioned uh, the, the budget was, you know, came in seventh. It did make $74 million on a $20 million budget. Not giant, but a, that's a lot of money. I mean, that's a, that's a $54 million, you know, uh, recoup. I mean, I don't know what P&A was, but that's not bad for a, a movie that is this weird and this small. It's a small movie. You know what do we think? Is this something that the aliens would like? I know I'm I'm I feel the most clear on this actually after this conversation. But what do you think?
5: I mean I love this movie. I love this movie. I want to try to make a pitch for Synecdoche, which maybe is the one problem for me for being like yes, because I believe just Synecdoche is the most masterpiece. Most masterpiece. Mm-hmm. That's me yeah. being. A, I'm a critic. It's the most masterpiece.
3: Most masterpiece. No, I agree. I, I mean I love that movie. That's a very uh, divisive film though from from everyone I've always talked to. Yeah. Just to answer the question that we ask all the time, I honestly believe that as much as I loved other films in this series more, like they're more enjoyable for me to watch just because they're pure, light, fun. Yeah, baby! There is something, and I said this last week too, there's something about this movie that encompasses everything of a relationship. I feel like, the movie we watched last week, A Place in the Sun, encompasses something so American about, or not even American. I think this worldwide phenomenon that goes on. I'm in a bad thing. I'm going to kill this person. Like that. It's almost like a side note to this other thing. Cause that, I think, is something that exists in culture. Uh, but this is something that I think is the most universal about relationships. Cause it has every part of it in one whole thing because those other movies don't show you the downside. They may be a great romantic comedy but they don't show you the whole life cycle and if that's the idea that we're trying to show aliens about our culture and humanity then it definitely goes if we're trying to make them laugh maybe I have a, a different point of view. Well, this, this is our one.
5: problem with this whole series, is everything yeah. is so good that we fall in love every single week. I and know, that's why you're really we need right. to really talk it out at the end.
3: I know possible. you're right. Yeah. yeah, we'll gotta see what stays with us. I was really happy to watch this one again. And excited to go into our next film, Love and Basketball. Some will say this belongs on the list. Others say what? You're talking about love and basketball. I've seen a lot of uh heated discourse on either side of this one. Uh, let's take a listen to the trailer.
4: They play the same game. If you don't
1: start a bad attitude, no one's going to recruit you. I'm a ball player.
4: With a jacked up attitude. They share the same dream. You'd love for him to play USC like you did, right? No, I'd love for him to get a good education.
0: I don't know why I keep hoping you'll grow out of this tomboy thing. I won't. I'm a lesbian.
4: <laughs> How about a little one-on-one? What
0: are we playing
4: for? I score, you strip. Take it off. Take it off. All span loving basketball, baby.
3: Movie is available wherever you can stream your films. Amy, this has been a wonderful time talking to you about this movie. I will not erase this podcast ever. We'll keep it forever to remember this conversation.
5: I might erase it. I might erase it right now. I might erase it as soon as I upload this audio. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? (laughs)
3: No! All right. We'll see you next week.